ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hi, Selena Green bringing you The Country Hour on this Wednesday. We're already up to the last day of January. Can you believe it? Well, in a moment, you'll find out why Wool Producers Australia has withdrawn its support for the National Electronic Identification Scheme for Sheep and Goats. Speaking of goats, what kind of prices is that market seeing of late and how are people feeling in the industry? Price is a pretty big concern for a lot of people. Obviously, yeah, they want the goat industry and get their goat enterprise to be a viable enterprise as opposed to sort of substituting out for sheep or cattle that could potentially be run in that same land area. That's to come, but first today, Peak Body Wool Producers Australia has withdrawn its support for the National Electronic Identification Scheme for sheep and goats. Back in September 2022, the country's ag ministers agreed making electronic ear tags mandatory for all sheep and goats born from the 1st of January next year. This follows Victoria's example in making tags mandatory from 2017. But individual states and territories are responsible for the design, rollout and funding of the scheme. Wool Producers Australia's President Steve Harrison says while the group is strongly supportive of a national EID scheme in principle, he says that support is contingent on the scheme being nationally consistent. There's three main key points uh, that we have concerns about. And one's the harmonisation of the states. Uh, The second one is the database. And the third one is the continued funding equitable funding of the database and, of course, for e-tags. Okay, so on that first point, you have concerns about harmonisation. Is that because even though it is uh, a national scheme, each state is essentially running its own race? Yes. Through best efforts to get them all into one room and have um, harmonisation, we don't feel that this has been achieved as, as well as it could be as yet. And one of the issues is um, there'll be a lot of double tagging of uh, sheep in other states, um, which already have a mob-based tag in their ear. And after, you know, two years, three years, um, they may require an EID in their ear to on-sell them. So double tagging is a huge concern in some states. So for most states, they'll start introducing the scheme in 2025 and then two years later, all sheep and lambs will need to be tagged. So is that what you mean there, that that, that two-year window means that there will be yes. a double up? Yes, exactly. It, you know, in, in Victoria, back in the day, you know, we had a five-year five phasing. That worked well. And, yeah, the other states need to, um, I would suggest, you know, look into that because otherwise, yeah, wool growers or any sheep grower, you know, that has to double tag sheep with an added cost of an AID, you know, that won't go over well. And we just think, you know, we're supporting our growers in uh, withdrawing our support at this until this is properly looked at. And a five-year window, that would cover the almost cover the lifespan of most sheep yeah you hit the nail on the head it's almost got them you know the majority of them done as in victoria but yeah it's certainly a lot better than trying to retag after two years five years yeah it just gives everyone a better opportunity to phase in your other concern was as you said about you want equitable funding for the scheme 
uh, as things stand, will will funding vary between states and farmers across borders may be paying more or less money to, to be part of the scheme, uh, depending on what state they're in? Yeah, so different states have um, announced different funding models at the moment. And, you know, Victoria, we have the comp funds that do, does assist with the um, funding of our um, tags here in Victoria. But, you know, unfortunately, unless there's continued funding for the year tags and the database, um, that is consistent, all of a sudden, you know, some producers in different states will be um, doing a lot more heavy lifting than other states, which, again, isn't equitable and it's not harmonised. What's the, the most that, that producers would be willing to pay for for these tags? Uh, look, I think it needs to be um, well under a dollar personally, um, well under a dollar. But, you know, some states are paying in excess of $2 at the moment. So to get that buy-in for um, biosecurity, I think we do need um, tags well under a dollar personally, yes. What do they cost in Victoria at the moment? Um, 83 cents has been one quote, but, yeah, I think um, the last lot I got was a dollar, but, yeah, 83 cents. Wool Producers Australia making this decision and this announcement to withdraw its support for the scheme. What what effect is that going to have on, on the scheme's rollout? Yeah, look, we're only one voice of um, 10 around the table, but um, we just feel we're better off to um, uh, withdraw our support now, let the other people around the table t- take notice of what we're, why we've done it. Um, otherwise, you know, down the track two or three years, these problems um, will arise. Um, so we certainly want, you know, this to be sorted out now rather than two, three years back when, you know, it's, it's the horse is folded as such. And to be clear, Steve, you are supportive of a national EID scheme. You're just not supportive of the way it's being rolled and planned out at the moment? That's exactly right, Angus, yes. And just explain why why EID has been important in Victoria and why it needs to be nationalised. Um, it's to do with traceability. We've um, had sheep catcher in the past where EID sheep in Victoria could be identified uh, where they were in less than 24 hours or 24 hours, whereas the visual-based tag, it could take up to, you know, in excess of 12 days. During that extra time, the risk of an infected animal making contact with wildlife, uh, for, for example, um, is certainly lengthened. And, yeah, once once an effort, or any exotic um, diseases um, in, into the wildlife, it's all over for um, our trading. And, yeah, we export here in Australia. So the quicker we can get on top of an outbreak, the quicker we can get back into trade. So EID certainly does quicken that process if or when an outbreak may occur. And you mentioned FMD there, foot and mouth disease, obviously not in Australia at the moment, but but on our doorstep. Is that the single biggest d- disease risk to the cheap industry that you see? Uh, yes, that um, obviously uh, lumpy skin in the cattle, but FMD. And again, we export. We're a country that exports. So if we can't export, there's a lot of sheep and lamb for us to um, eat domestically. That was Wool Producers Australia President Steve Harrison. He's speaking there with Angus Verley. Well, the export of goats continues to be a large industry for Australia, but it seems prices producers are getting still aren't reflecting that demand. Goat advisor for Western Local Land Services, Kieran Smith, he says there's been a slight correction in the market, but the industry is still struggling to see higher prices for producers. He's speaking here with Lily McEwer. The market at the moment is still pretty depressed. We've had a slight uptick in the market just coming into the new year, which sort of might be attributed to increases in sort of lamb and mutton prices sort of the trends sometimes follow that price of mutton as well as you know a couple of short-term supply issues with 
keep it wet weather around and not being able to get in trucks into certain places. So yeah, it sort of lifted slightly from where it was at the end of last year, but yeah, still pretty low, which is sort of attributed to sort of the sheer quantity of, of supply at, at the moment. Yeah, obviously they're, they're fairly prolific breeders. I mean, yeah, coming off the back of a couple of good years um, with a with a short generation interval and fairly fecund animals, there's yeah a lot of animals on the ground. Do you think that there's sort of hope in the near future that the prices will will go up? Yeah, I think uh, sort of long term, everyone's everyone's sort of fairly confident that the the market will kick up and yeah, sort of come back to a pretty pretty good level that works for both producers and processors and, and the retailer uh, as well as the consumers. But yeah, just sort of how long. That will be still a little bit of an unknown. You said you're working a lot with producers. What are you hearing on the ground about their sort of main concerns with the industry? Probably on the ground, yeah. I think price is a pretty big concern for a lot of people. Obviously, yeah, they want the goat industry and get their goat enterprise to be a viable enterprise as opposed to sort of substituting out for sheep or cattle that could potentially be run in that same land area. I think with the, the price of sort of other livestock enterprises coming back as well, Goats are still sort of fairly comparable in terms of returns for, for a lot of people, so they're, they're sticking to the producing goats still. But yeah, certainly it is a it is a big concern. Do you think that there's more sort of potential to push the goat market domestically? There's certainly the the potential there. One of the sort of biggest limiting factors really is money to put towards marketing. Obviously, the proportion of, of goats sold domestically compared to that of say lamb is, is a bit lower so yeah there's sort of not as many levy dollars that can be allocated towards uh, marketing and then and then marketing domestically is sort of a, a bit of a challenge but it's certainly yeah a lot of potential for growth both domestically and internationally I believe. That was New South Wales Western Local Land Services Senior Goat Advisor Kieran Smith. Despite the industry struggling to rise above the lows, Global Market Insight Analyst for Goats at Meat and Livestock Australia, Emiliano Diaz, says that there's still a large demand coming from overseas. So now we, we have positive news in terms of the production and export. We have recently the data of export, so we have calendar year 2023, and the export has been massively up this year. We went like 55%. That's a great news. This is the second highest volume since 2014, I think. So, but also we can we have to acknowledge that the prices that producers are having at, at the moment are not the best. We are coming from nine dollars a kilo to roughly one or two dollars a kilo right now. But this is boosting the markets overseas. We've seen markets that they have stepped up uh, and they were traditional markets like we can name like Trinidad and Tobago that was uh, one of the five biggest markets. With the price, the, the prices that we had before, they they haven't got any or not much to, they haven't imported. But now with the new prices, they have been importing more. They haven't stepped into into Australian goats more, and that's uh, is happening with other markets as well. So I know that for producers, it's not the ideal, but so it's boosting export markets all over the world for Australia. Where is that main demand coming from? So we export about ninety percent of our production, right? So um, the US is by far the largest market. It used to be 60, 65% of our export. What's happening in that market is affecting the, the, the demand in here. This year, we had a, a, a little bit of change. Like 
instead of 65% of total export, the U.S. accounted for 50% 50 or a bit less than 47%, I think it was the the, the percentage. That's very low when we compare with the the past five years. Um, So the U.S. is the main one. Then we have uh, Korea has been a, a booming market since 2020, and they they, jump, they went from 11% and being the third and the fourth largest market to be the second one. They've been growing every year, and they've been doing record high, or we've been doing record high to this market every year, and 2023 isn't the, the, the exception. And I think like everyone who is involved in gold now is, is talking about China, because China jumped quite significantly in 2023 with this. It was more opportunistic with the price. So they went from almost non-existent market for us to be the second market in 2023. So those three are sort of the the three biggest markets. But we have to take uh, the U.S. as the biggest market. And what's happening there is is what affects our demand here. The demand is still there, especially from overseas. But as you were also saying, the producers just aren't getting that return. Why is that? As I said, like, what happened in the U.S. is the most important thing. And since 2019 to 2022, we we have prices of $9 a kilo, and that was more expensive than, than lamb at that time. When we, when after, in the second half of 2022, this, the, the, the price of gold has been going down, and that's why that's because the, the U.S. consumers start having issues with uh, financial issues. They have to tie up the, the spending. And the first thing that you, you, you start cutting is the highest product. So the gold was the highest animal protein at that time. So they soft, the demand was softening uh, during 2020, the second half of 2022. And at the same time, the production was ramping up with the better conditions here in Australia. So that's Sort of create uh, the perfect storm for for the market and drop drop the price during uh, at that time when the prices went down a lot and China jumped into to because of the favorite prices that start creating a bit more demand at the moment we have more like more demand because they, the prices are more favorable they they as I said like other markets like Trinidad and Tobago and Taiwan are growing because this this is the price they are uh, they are comfortable to buy. But also we are competing with lamb and, and mutton particularly. There are record production in those two proteins. So suddenly there is a bunch of protein going out to the market that is pressuring the the price down. So one of, that's one of the, the things. We have mutton and, and lamb as well going down way before gold when uh, start going down. So it's sort of, and we've seen that lamb start going up now, hit bottom already and start recovering. So we expect that gold prices start following lamb as well and in, in the upcoming month. That is Global Market Insight Analyst for Goats and Meat at Livestock Australia, Emiliano Diaz, and he was speaking there to Lily McEwer. It's just going on 20 minutes past 12. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Time of the week to head to the markets. Now we've got the Dublin sheep and cattle sale results today with Elsie Adamo. Afternoon, Elsie. Good afternoon, Selena. 
Numbers reduced this week as agents offered 6,000 lambs and 2,200 sheep. Quality was fair to good with more heavy lambs on offer. However, score two merino lambs were presented in large numbers once again. A full field of trade and processor buyers competed with specialty butchers and restockers. Extreme heavyweight lambs eased $5 to $10 per head, with trade lambs selling generally firm. Store lambs sold to erratic competition, with some wide variations in prices. Mutton quality was again good, and prices here lifted by up to $10 per head. Extremely light lambs sold from a low of $14 to a top of $110, as light lambs sold from $86 to $130. Light trade lambs range from $140 to $154, as medium weight sold from $154 to $166. Heavyweight sold from $168 to $218, with extreme heavyweight selling from $200 to $246 per head. A fair to good selection of hoggets sold from $57 to $124 per head. Light use sold from $45 to $55, medium weights made $25 to $90, with heavyweights selling to $68 per head. Ram lambs sold from $32 to $87, with heavy rams selling $20 to $94 per head. Meanwhile, in the cattle market, quality was generally fair to good and numbers increased as agents offered 250 live weight and open auction cattle. The usual trade and processor buyers were joined by feeders and restockers with an additional processor now in the mix. Prices were generally firm to dearer, with ideally finished cattle selling to a premium this week. Vila steers sold from 290 to 334 cents, as Vila heifers ranged from 238 to 300 cents. Yearling steers ranged from 250 to 322 cents, as heifers sold from 240 to 308 cents. Grown steers sold from 244 to 280 cents, while heifers ranging from 270 cents to 294 cents per kilogram. Light cows sold from 92 cents to 184 cents. Medium cows range from 200 to 254 cents, with heavy cows selling from 248 cents to 286 cents per kilogram. Light bulls sold from 200 to 242 cents, with heavy bulls selling from 200 to 236 cents per kilogram. This has been Elsie Adamo filling in for John Traeger for the MLA Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks for that report, Elsie. And now off to the Mount Gambier report. Peter Kerr has that for you today. Good afternoon, Peter. Good afternoon, Selena. This is the Mount Gambier cattle report for the 31st of January. Numbers listed at Mount Gambier today is actually showed a 2,515 head of live weight and open auction cattle. These sold to a large field of trade and processor buyers along with feeder and restocker interest. Quality was generally good in a much dearer market. Steelers steers to the trade range from 295 to 372 cents with isolated sales up to the high of 396. Similar heifers from 242 to 330. Feeders operated on steers from 286 up to 360 cents. Feeders from, uh, sorry, heifers from 266 up to 280 with restocker interest from 285 to 340 cents on steers and up to 270 cents a kilogram on the heifers. Yearling steers to the trade range from 290 to 330 cents. Similar heifers from 278 to 307. Feeders operated on steers from 255 to 360 and on the heifers from 248 to 296 cents. With restocker interest in steers from 245 to 284 and heifers from 221 up to 301 cents a kilogram. Growing steers and boys to the trade range from 255 up to 330 cents. Feeders operating up to 312. Growing heifers to the trade from 232 to 310. Manufacturing steers range from 240 to 288 cents. 
with heavy bulls from 180 to 260 cents a kilogram. At the time of this report, Selena, the cows and lambs are still to be sold. This has been Peter Kerr for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you, Peter. It's 24 minutes past 12 here on the South Australian Country Hour and you are with Selena Green. Let's head to the Weather Bureau and Simon Timkey joins us again today. Hello, Simon. Hi there, Selena. Much of a change since we spoke yesterday? Look, there has been a little bit of a change for, for the weekend, but ahead of that, not much change. That uh, low pressure, uh, sorry, high pressure ridge across waters to the south is really the dominant feature on our weather um, for Wednesday right through to Saturday. On Saturday, it, it moves across the south of South Australia, giving us a, a bit of a change as far as the wind goes. But through Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the winds stay south to southeasterly, freshening up a bit each afternoon with, uh, with sea breezes. And in fact, we do have a strong wind warning out for Spencer Gulf and Gulf St Vincent, including Adelaide Metro waters for um, strong sea breezes later on this afternoon uh, and, and into the early evening. Uh, as far as any weather goes, dry conditions um, right across the state, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday, apart from maybe just a slight chance of, a, of an isolated light shower to about southern coasts uh, today um, through until Friday. But looking at the satellite picture at the moment, we did have a bit of cloud up in the far northwest earlier this morning, which has cleared away. Um, some cloud about uh, coastal districts uh, is in the process of clearing. It's mostly contracted back to near the coast, but still a little bit about the place. But but no um, showers or rain falling out of any of that cloud, expecting um, pretty much dry dry conditions. Um, we did have uh, a, a little bit of dust or, or salt, I guess, blowing off... Um, uh, Lake Air late yesterday uh, and there's a chance we could see a little bit of that again later this afternoon um, heading towards the north in that south to southeasterly airstream um, but uh, I think probably after today the winds will be uh, a little bit different direction and probably not quite so strong so uh, tomorrow and Saturday and Sunday unlikely to see that. Uh, on Saturday, as I mentioned, that uh, high-pressure ridge will move across the south of, uh, of South Australia, um, giving us much lighter winds and even the sea breezes uh, are likely to, to be a bit less. They'll still occur, I think, but not be as, as um, fresh as we've seen during the week. Uh, and then on Sunday, uh, a change approaching and we'll see uh, the winds turn around northeast to northwesterly and freshen up a bit during the morning uh, ahead of that gusty south to southwesterly wind change, uh, expecting to move that change to move across the west and south of uh, of the state during during the day. Whilst that change is moving across, it looks like uh, uh, a tropical low, which was tropical cyclone. Kiralee, but which is uh, eased and it's just back to a low, but that's uh, looking to move southwards uh, over over Queensland, uh, and it could bring um, some showers and thunderstorms to the to the far northeast of South Australia. Um, signals are a bit different from the different models, so confidence is fairly low. But there's certainly some signs there that we could see some showers and thunderstorms in the very far northeast of the state on Sunday and on Monday uh, as that low moves across more southern parts of, uh, uh, of Queensland. So that, that's a bit of a change from, uh, from yesterday's mm. forecasts. And then into early next week, um, a, a couple of showers about southern coastal parts uh, following Sunday's change, possibly for pushing over the agricultural area uh, and parts of the west early early next week. But generally, the only significant rainfall that we could see during the next week or so uh, is is if that tropical is, is if that extropical cyclone does move down over the far northeast. Uh, uh, apart from that, 
I think those four days out to the end of Sunday, likely to see less than two millimetres about southern coasts and then dry elsewhere apart from that far northeast where we might see falls of five to 20 millimetres in the far northeast on Sunday. Possibly some local heavier falls depending on where exactly that low uh, does end up going. If it moves a little bit more towards SA, then we could see some, some heavier falls. So it'd be interesting to watch that um, on Sunday and early next week to see what happens with that low, uh, Selena. Absolutely. Watch this space. Thanks for that, Simon. Thanks, Selena. Simon Timkey there from the Weather Bureau. Looking at the western inland of New South Wales for tomorrow, the west, upper western district and the lower western district, both are looking at a sunny day, both expecting southerly winds around 25 to 35 kilometres per hour. Now, the upper western district overnight temperatures getting between 19 and 24 degrees. During the day, they're expected to reach around 40. For the lower western district, those overnight temperatures between 15 and 18, and you can expect daytime temperatures to reach into the mid to high 30. Well, coming up after, well, in the next half an hour, uh, we're going to cross to the Riverland because uh, wine growers, grape growers there, uh, they're out in the streets today. What's brought them out and, well, what's happening with Australian wine exports overseas? You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Hi there. Now you're going to hear from some pretty concerned grape growers and winemakers in just a moment. They're in the state's Riverland. They're worried about the future of their industry amid what are some very tough times for them at the moment. What are they seeking? Well, as I said, we're going to find out when we cross there in just a moment's time. And speaking of wine, why is Australia sending less and less of it overseas? So we're actually seeing alcohol consumption fall. Like some consumers are abstaining from drinking wine. Um, others are drinking less but paying more while some are also seeking sort of no and low alcohol options. Well, here's some of the latest statistics on uh, well, where Australia's wine is and isn't going, but are you drinking less wine than before? And if so, why? Is it for your health or for your budget? Maybe it's a bit of both. Let me know on my talkback number, 1300 222 891, or you can send me a text on 0467 921. First up, though, Chris McLaughlin has your headlines. Hi, Chris. Good afternoon, Selena. New Zealand says it'll start talks with Australia this week about cooperating with the AUKUS Trilateral Defence Partnership between Australia, Britain and the US. The New Zealand Foreign Minister, Winston Peters, is heading to Melbourne today for an inaugural joint meeting of New Zealand and Australian foreign and defence ministers. Inflation's come in lower than expected, with prices rising just 0.6% over the December quarter and 4.1% over the past 12 months. The result could make further interest rate rises unlikely. The Northern Territory Supreme Court has dismissed a challenge over whether the Northern Territory Government acted lawfully when it awarded one of the largest water licences in Australia's history. The licence permits Fortune Agribusiness to extract 40,000 megalitres of groundwater each year from Singleton Station, an arid cattle property north of Alice Springs. The Federal Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, says the Government's looking at what more could be done to take financial pressure off households, including an extension to power bill relief. Millions of households saw $500 taken off their power bills in last year's federal budget as part of a $1.5 billion package. More ABC News at 1 o'clock. 
Thank you, Chris. Chris McLaughlin with those headlines. Wine grape growers in the Riverland are pushing for political intervention to improve the sustainability of prices for their crop. As they enter another difficult vintage, after years of uncertainty, they fear their industry could collapse unless something changes. Our reporter Eliza Berlage has this story. More than 100 wine grape growers weathered the heat to share their frustrations at a shed in Love Day. Men and women from their 20s to their 80s discussed what some have referred to as a catastrophic situation of low prices and a lack of industry support. Second-generation wine grape grower Jim Giagas says he organised the gathering because it was time to take action together. Well, the frustration of uh, the system that is being uh, used at the moment to have our pricing so low that it's unsustainable. Growers cannot grow grapes for a third of the cost of production. And we've been talking about doing something, and I, me and a couple other guys got together and invited the growers to say, enough is enough. If we don't stand up, we will not have a future. And what was the reaction like when you told people that you wanted to organise a meeting of well, a big people group? People were very, very happy about it because people are very, very frustrated. Their livelihoods are being uh, eroded. Their savings have been eroded. There's come into a situation where people are actually going broke. And if this situation continues, I think we will all go broke and there will be no wine industry in the Riverland. How sustainable then is wine grape growing for you? Well, at this stage, it's very unsustainable. The, all our costs are fixed, uh, so there's nothing really that we can do about our costs. Now, if I was a grower that was just growing red varieties, I would be broke today. I'm a little bit luckier that I, I have probably a 50-50 split, which helps out a bit. But how long will it help, I don't know, because at the end of the day, the funds are eroding. The only reason uh, we are affording to keep afloat at the moment is one, I am a um, harvester contractor and also a spray contractor, which is subsidises a bit of my income. And we did have a, little, a few funds that were stored away, which now have diminished. And if this continues to this year and next year, I don't think we'll be here. And like I said before, I'm a second-generation grape grower. My son is uh, coming on board as the third generation, but... I don't know today whether I've made the right decision to keep him here because at the end of the day, it's a uh, downslide from here. So do you think there is enough awareness of your issue to get political intervention? Um, No, I don't think there is. Personally, that's my opinion. I don't think there is out there. I hope today starts something that it ends up in local, state and federal politics and that the politicians know that growers are fed up and uh, that they've had enough. And it's time that we are not treated like peasants and that we are treated like people that are uh, business people. We've invested a lot of money. Me personally, I've invested millions in this. this, And also I've invested 50 years of my life. And uh, my father before him, before me. So I don't want to lose something that my father started. You know what I mean? And uh, because he will be turning in his grave today. Love Day wine grape grower Jim Giagas. Farmer wine grape grower Jason Perrin has been working on a proposal to change the wine grape code of conduct from a voluntary one to a mandatory set of rules. He says the meeting showed growers are in agreement that action is needed to make prices sustainable. The general consensus would be that every grape grower 
are on the same page for sustainable grape prices for 2024 and particularly as we go forward for 2025 in advance because growers cannot afford to have two or three years of unsustainable prices. No business, farming community or otherwise, uh, can operate for two to three years with uh, having to sell off assets to try and actually stay afloat. And that's the situation currently. As one uh, seat grower, who's a big landowner, uh, said to me after the meeting, we have our backs against the wall. If we do not get better prices in 2024 than we got in 2023, we cannot look at staying in business for 2025. Grape growers have been historically notorious for their acceptance until things become just unbearable. And I understand, Jason, you've been pushing to try to get the wine grape code of conduct made from voluntary to mandatory? Yes, correct. Uh, currently, the, the code, uh, as you said, it's a national code that's voluntary. It requires parties who are generally signatories, uh, so grower and winemaker, to be uh, signatories to uh, the code. If there's any disagreement about prices offered, they enter uh, an expert determination process and there's a layout for following that procedure one way or another. But it's supposed to be, when they enter that procedure, it's supposed to be an agreement where both parties agree to be bound by the decision. And unfortunately, that and other issues relating to the code, with a number of wineries around Australia, big and small, show that the uh, voluntary code, because it's a voluntary, is not working well. Farmer wine grape grower Jason Perrin. SA Independent member Frank Pangello says he called the meeting to get a picture of how dire things are for Riverland wine grape growers. Well, the most compelling point about all this here is they can't afford to continue doing what they've been doing for the last three or four years. They can't afford to absorb these costs. I've had families come and talk to me about not being able to pay their mortgages. They've taken out loans against their production. Well, they can't do that now. They owe the banks significant amounts of money and the banks aren't going to lend anymore because they know what the situation is. So they look like going to the wall. Some people have been here for decades. It's going to be heartbreaking for them. I mean, that is the issue that is confronting a lot of people. What, you just want them to walk away from something that's been part of their lives without giving them any assistance. A company like Accolade can offer them 120 or dollars or $130 a tonne for red grapes, saying that's all they can afford, and that's what they can only put into their tanks, yet they used to be able to pay $350. So they've got tanks that have got $350 worth of wine, but now they can't afford to give them that. Now, I don't know whether people are aware about how much a grower actually gets uh, once the product is turned into wine. And it's less than 15 cents a bottle that comes back to the grower. Now, that isn't enough. It's about 5%. And you can't have an industry reliant on that because there is no industry. The economy just not there. The economics is not there for them. The ABC contacted Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt's office for comment. A spokesperson for the minister referred us to his statement from December last year. The statement says the major problem faced by the Australian wine industry has been the collapse of the China market, which they're working to stabilise. 
Minister Watt says while he doesn't oppose a mandatory code of conduct, it should be considered carefully. That report from Eliza Burlage. So let's stay in Renmark where the wine grape growers are continuing to send a message today. And this time they're taking to the streets in their tractors, trucks and harvesters. Well, Eliza has been out meeting with the growers again and she joins me now. Eliza, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Selena. So what's been happening today? Oh, it, the streets have been a buzz with action. Uh, a lot of people have said they haven't seen uh, any kind of demonstration like this in quite a long time. Uh, dozens of tractors, trucks and harvesters rolled down the main street of Renmark with some very angry um, growers who are really wanting better for their industry. Uh, there was you know, men, women and even children that um, popped into an, another meeting that was here today. The meeting was actually about uh, China exports, uh, but it was a great opportunity for some of these wine grape growers to, to let some other people know in the industry that um, they're really in crisis and they need something done. Um, otherwise, you know, their industry could collapse. What kind of reaction have you seen from the locals uh, to this protest? Yeah, look, you know, it's not every day that you get held up uh, in a country town. We don't have a lot of traffic lights or traffic delays. But, uh, yeah, the locals um, who were on the roads at the time or on the streets, they were pretty receptive. Um, the growers told me they got some honks and some good on you, mate, keep going, uh, and that, you know, they'd like to see more of it because I think, you know, look, it's been a depressing situation for a long time, Selena, uh, with the wine grape industry here. They've just got so many pressing issues um, with the costs that they have to deal with and the low prices that they're getting. So I think people here are, are happy to see growers having um, you know, a bit of pride and, and making noise because what happens to growers here um, could have an effect on the rest of the economy locally as well. So, yeah, people have been uh, yeah, relatively um, pretty supportive. And you have had a chance to catch up with some of those growers today? I have, yes. They are. It's normally quite hard to get um, growers to chat on the record. Um, there's been a, a lot of fear about speaking out, uh, but they've basically said, look, if we don't say something, we'll, you know, uh, the industry could die anyway, so we might as well, you know, uh, be, be loud on the way out if that's what's going to happen. Well, let's hear what some of them had to say. Savagagas. Uh, we just start, uh, got a few of the boys, a few of the girls together to start a bit of a protest to show awareness in the industry. I'm only young, I'm still 25 and well, if the industry collapses, I collapse, really. This is all I know and this is what I love doing and I want to keep doing it but at these prices we can't keep doing it. And Sava, you've taken to the streets with your tractors, trucks and harvesters down the main street of Renmark. What did that feel like? Yeah, it feels- you know what, it feels good because this is what we need to do because, like I said, if we don't do anything, I'm out. And I don't know anything about it. I'm stuffed. That's it. I'm done. And were people mostly pretty, um, you know, patient for you guys to move this this action, this Yeah, there, there was a couple of guys that stopped me there and said, good, keep doing it. The Riverland's going to collapse if this is not happening. We, we are the Riverland. Us farmers are the Riverland. We are the food bowl. And what's the mood amongst you and your fellow growers today? Uh, a lot of anger. A lot of anger. We're all angry. You're angry. I'll, I'll be honest, I've got to harvest tomorrow. I don't want to harvest. Why should I harvest when I don't know what I'm getting? And are you planning to deliver your grapes this year for vintage? Oh, that's still something I've got to think about. 
Lastly as well, you obviously had that big heated meeting yesterday with a big turnout. You know, how do you feel after that meeting yesterday? I feel like more people are hungry, hungry to get more answers. Um, yeah, I'm Jarvis Wandersberg and I'm a vineyard contractor in Riverland. And Jarvis, are you part of this big action today, this protest of vehicles? Well, yes I am because, um, well, with the grape industry being the way it is, like, uh, it affects everyone, contractors like myself, businesses, you know, no one's spending any money and it affects the whole region. And how long have you been working in the industry for? Uh, about five, six years now. Yeah. And I guess what have you seen over that time? Well, you know, when I first started, times were a little bit better, and then now they've slowly dwindled off, and it's just, yeah, this year's looking really shocking, so... Yeah. And what did it feel like to take to the streets with your tractors, trucks and harvesters? Well, it's good. Hopefully we can just make someone listen and, um, you know, appreciate what's actually going on in the industry, and, yeah, because so far no-one's really taken any notice. And, yeah, Jarvis, you were saying you and Sava are some of the younger guys here. You know, the average age of growers and people in the industry is, you know, you know, 60 or 50. Why is it really important for you young blokes to say something as well? Well, you know, if um, the industry goes down now, what future do we have? You know, like I started out my business study uh, in 2020 and like, it's already dwindling off because uh, the industry is going downhill. And what has that meant for you? Have you been able to pay your bills? Well, only just... <laughs> Yeah, no, it's looking pretty, yeah, it's pretty bad at the moment. And what sort of action would help you? Well, just get someone to listen, like, to realise what the wineries are doing and that's wrong, like, you know, some of the stuff they're coming out with, yeah, just not right. That was Jarvis Wundenberg there and you also heard from Sava Giargis. And uh, they were one of the organisers, or some of the organisers of that protest happening in the Riverland today. And thanks to Eliza Bellage to crossing, crossing into us alive from those protests today. It is just going on 14 minutes to one. With the ABC Listen app, you can take the cricket with you anywhere you go. Off to the beach. Take the cricket. Road trip. Take the cricket. Museum visit. Shh, take the cricket. Seriously? You want to listen? <laughs> ABC Sports, expert coverage of every test. Big shout, he's out. One day up. Australia is celebrating. And T20. Over the rope for another six. Live and commercial free. So whatever you're up to this summer, take the cricket with you and listen big on the ABC Listen app. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. You're with Selena Green this afternoon. We're going to stick with the wine industry now because the amount of Australian wine being exported globally has actually declined in the past year as people right around the world drink less wine. Both the volume and value of wine being shipped out of our country fell in the past 12 months. That's according to Wine Australia's latest export report. Wine Australia's manager of Market Insights, Peter Bailey, says it's not all doom and gloom. I asked him if the figures reflected the tough year that's been experienced by many wine producers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Australian wine exports um, fell by 2% in value to $1.9 billion and 3% in volume to 607 million litres um, in the 12 months to December 2023. Over the long term, how does that sort of compare the, the amount and, and volume that we're exporting? In the long term, how does that sort of compare to previous years? Oh, look, um, the positive of these figures are an improvement on those that we reported in the September 2023 report, where we had value at $1.81 billion. So although that, that still is well below long-term averages. And was this expected, this kind of decline, or, and by this much? 
Yeah, look, I mean, the trading conditions remain extremely challenging for Australian exporters. So if you're looking at the 112 destinations that received Australian mine during the year, um, only 44 imported more value than they did the previous year. And globally, wine consumption is declining, and there's a number of reasons for that. Obviously, there's this global economic tightening, which has seen people, um, you know, reducing their discretionary spending, and also consumers are being far more conscious of their health. As you say, that decline is is widespread across quite a number of markets. There is it a pretty consistent reason why markets are taking less Australian wine, seeing that Europe and North America are are two particular markets where there has been a a drop. Are they the same reasons why they're taking less of our wine? Yeah, look, it's very consistent across the board, and it's not just for Australia, and it's also not just wine. So we're actually seeing alcohol consumption fall um, as well. And then adding to these pressures, we've also got a global oversupply of wine. So we've had an an average excess um, wine production of just under 3 billion litres every year since 2012. And that's more than double Australia's total wine production. And then you throw on top of that, you know, health and wellness. Like Some consumers are abstaining from drinking wine. Um, Others are drinking less but paying more, while some are also seeking sort of no and low alcohol options. The Australian drinkers that are picking up the pieces there a bit or is is that a similar trend are you able to say it's it's a very similar trend um in the domestic market um the australian domestic market is um uh you know very mature market and um it's, it's a very similar trend that we're seeing um in markets like the us and uk and one of the trends is we're seeing you know consumption growing at sort of premium wine segments you know that's sort of ten dollars or more per bottle while that has a bigger volume commercial and has been declining so that, that really does indicate that consumers are drinking less, but perhaps choosing to purchase at higher price points. But even at those higher price points, we've actually seen the, the growth rates lower um, than in previous years. And this does um, disproportionately affect Australia, given the majority of our exports um, in volume are in the commercial price segments. Are there any bright spots in this report, seeing markets like Hong Kong and Singapore are, are increasing in, in what they're taking? Yeah, and the latest quarter, the figures are quite positive as well. So um, whether that's, uh, that, that trend will continue, um, it does show there is some positivity in the latest quarter. Um, and, yeah, like Hong Kong and Singapore were standout um, growth markets um, and driving some growth into Asia. Um, and the number of exporters into those regions has been growing as well. Um, but we also need to make the point that, you know, Hong Kong and Singapore are key trading hubs in that region. And, you know, as such, some of the wine is on ship to other markets in that region. What about the China factor here? Are they simply out of the equation for the whole time that this report covers? Yeah, look, uh, our exports to China um, really have uh, plummeted over the last sort of three years. And obviously there's a process to play out um, with the investigation at the moment, so I don't really want to preempt any of those outcomes. But that said, you know, China is still an important market um, for Australian wine, and over many years, Australian wine companies have developed close relationships with importers, buyers, and consumers of Australian wine in China, and those relationships remain important to our wine community. More broadly, with exports overall, um, you know, whether or not China comes back on on board, is this given what we are hearing about global wine consumption? This is a a, a trend that is looking to continue. Oh, look! As I said, the, the latest quarter we've actually seen an increase in exports. So whether that does continue or it's just a, a short term uh, increase, uh, time will tell. But you know, there's still a lot of challenges and a lot of hurdles that we need to overcome. But you know, we're we're aware of those challenges and. 
you know, as an industry, we're meeting those. And in terms of you know, market development activities, there's still a lot going in on that space in terms, in terms of you know, trying to drive um, Australian wine sales in a lot of these markets. What do wine produ- Australian wine producers take from a set of figures like this? What, what is the sort of takeaway from those in the business, uh, you know, looking at these numbers? Oh, look, I would still say if you're looking at where the growth is coming from, um, Asia is still an overall market where there's growth opportunities. But as, as many of those markets uh, are still emerging wine drinkers, you know, it will be volatile, but it's really a long-term play into, into that region. Um, you're looking at the US, no doubt the US is still a very challenging market, but it's still the world's biggest premium market, and that the, the premium opportunity remains, even though we know at the moment it's quite challenging. And then into Europe, definitely, you know, that, that part of the world is facing a lot of challenges. Inflation is much higher there than other, than other markets around the world. But with the UK, we're still number one there. It's still our biggest market. And, um, you know, we're actually keeping up pace with the market in terms of growth. So if you're looking at what's happening in retail in terms of the off-trade market, you know, Australian sales actually increased in value by 2% in, in the last 12 months. So it's not all doom and gloom. That is Wine Australia's Manager of Market Insights, Peter Bailey, speaking about their latest export report for Australian wine, which was released today. A few comments coming through on our talkback line and the text line around uh, the situation being faced by Riverland grape growers at the moment. This one's from Bob from Blackwood. He called in to say that he and his family used to grow wine grapes. said they sold their property and business 20 years ago, but they never had any problems selling their grapes and getting good prices. Bob says he suspects maybe part of the problem could be growers today are overwatering, overwatering, I should say, sorry, and focusing on tonnage over quality grapes. This text, no name, but it says Riverland growers have historically been paid more revenue per hectare than many other South Australian regions due to their ability to grow massive tons. Text goes on to say prices only fell for them a few years ago. There is little or no requirement for cheap, low quality wine anywhere in the world. They can use the water for other commodities that do well there and have global demand. They may require support to change, says this texter. And one more, this text says, Riverland Mental Health has always been close to my heart for the sake of my beautiful family and their beautiful community. It's just so hard. It is six minutes to one. Conversations. Spend an hour in the life of someone else. We need to cross a bridge. Suddenly, I just had one scream and I'm falling down somewhere. Someone who has seen and done remarkable things. My next recollection, someone, believe it or not, in Israel, screaming in perfect Russian. Do you remember who you are? Hear the latest conversations. Weekday mornings from 11 on ABC Radio. Or anytime on the ABC Listen app. So that was the last text, but I've just got another one come through. This one is from HR on the York Peninsula who suggests it's time to cut the amount of tax paid on alcoholic beverages. Thanks for all your texts coming through today. You're with Selena Green and this is the South Australian Country Hour. You've probably seen a silo converted into a farm swimming pool or a bar. It's a pretty cool idea, but have you seen one that's been crafted into a two-storey hotel? Well, that's what Ken Edwards and Ruth Ashburner Gorse have done. The couple run a farm stay near Pittsworth, that's on the Darling Downs, and they spoke to Brandon Long about their 18 month build. After their first single story glamping silo became a hit, the owners of property Fig Tree decided to tackle their most ambitious project yet. Well, I think it was so popular that that really took off. Everybody loved it, so we thought we'd just step it up and make something a little bit bit better with more facilities in it and creature comforts for people. 
from the city but still be able to come to the country and enjoy it. One of the most important parts of the build was using locally sourced materials. With his engineering background and her passion for design, they knew it was achievable. The worst thing that we can think of is going to the tip, getting rid, rid of things. So it was really important to us to recycle or upcycle existing materials. We wanted it all to blend in because this is a country property. Um, and the lovely thing about pretty much everything in this silo is it's all been sourced locally. Uh, from the silo itself through to the big, big uh, posts that hold it all together. The old galvanised silo was sourced from Mill Merrin, the ironbark timber poles came from a miller at Cecil Plains, and the spiral staircase originated from Stanthorpe. From the outside, it looks relatively unchanged apart from some window cutouts and a metal veranda. On the inside, it's spread over two levels and features a fireplace, bar, fridge, couch and bathroom. Due to the rocky terrain making underground power cables too expensive, and the desire for a low-carbon footprint, the Silo Hotel is completely off-grid, running off solar panels and 12-volt batteries. Off-grid, that mm. was important to us. Um, you know, the way forward is obviously people are really trying to, for the climate's sake, get off-grid. Ken and Ruth now aim to put the final touches on the silo before opening it to the public in just a few months. Well, there you go. There might be a new accommodation option for you if you're doing some travelling. That's farm stay owners Ken Edwards and Ruth Ashburner-Gorse doing something really interesting there with an old silo. They were speaking there to Brandon Long. It's almost time for the one o'clock news. You won't have to wait too long to hear this man on your radio, Nicola Bailhartz. Hello. Good afternoon. What have you got for us on this, what, the last day of January? Oh, I didn't realise that. Already a month into the <laughs> year. The, the year's the 12th gone. Hang on. <laughs> When did that happen? I don't know. Actually, no, that has been pretty busy. Uh, Well, um, a question for you. If you have uh, leftovers, Mm. what do you do do with them? Uh, Well, they generally go to work with my husband the next day. For some reason, he he gets to claim them. But my kids Mm. eat like, you know, there's no tomorrow. So there's not really... There's not much. Do you do do much meal prep? Do you do like preparing meals and then putting them in the freezer? I try, you know, all good intentions. (laughs) And then they they fall apart. We're going to talk about uh, we, we we talk on uh, talk about uh, food of a, of a Wednesday, and we're going to talk about freezer food this afternoon. Uh, whether or not it's something you partake in, uh, whether or not because I know some people think it tastes different. I if think it, so. If defrosted food just tastes a little bit, it's different. not the same. No, you don't get that same kind of. Um, pang of freshness, do no. you? But uh, we're going to find out a little bit more about the, some, of, some of the do's and don'ts because there are certainly, and I'm sure a lot of things spring to mind straight away, of things that don't go particularly well if you freeze them, but then there are others that, that can be a bit of a be a, a, a mini lifesaver if you need something very quickly that you can just pop in a microwave or, or defrost on a, a stovetop or something like that. So we'll be taking a look at the do's and don'ts. Uh, and the, the, the Paringa black stump is, is, I don't know if you've seen, seen it in person mm. or seen photos of it, this remarkable uh, tree root, which is about, I think is about eight metres across and weighs eight tonnes um, based in the, in the Riverland. It's on the move right now. I can't wait to hear on how on earth you move something Exactly, of that size. exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Nikolai. Nikolai Balharts, he'll be on your radio this afternoon. It's time for the news. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.